this evening we uh, continue our series uh, titled Pray Like Paul. And uh, we've been looking at the example of Paul um, and what it means to pray as Paul prayed. Uh, to pray as someone who loved the Lord uh, and gave his all uh, for the cause of the gospel. Uh, in light of the abundant love that, that God gave Paul, Paul was able to pray in a certain way. And, and tonight we're going to think about that reality for Paul can be our reality. Uh, as we see how Paul prays, uh, we can also pray uh, in that vein. Uh, tonight we're taking time to look um, at Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 14 through to the end of the chapter. So 14 to 21. Uh, so let's just take some time to, to look at God's word. Um, I'm reading from the CSB, Christian Standard Bible. So Paul says this uh, to the Ephesians. Uh, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's just take a moment to pray as we ponder these words. So Father, we, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that, that we tonight have this opportunity to hear you, to respond to you, and ultimately to submit to what your word says. I pray, Lord, that our, our heart's declaration would be one where we say, we must decrease and you must increase. And so, Lord, we humbly come before you and pray that, that you would challenge and encourage, you would convict and transform. Lord, we ask this in the power of your Holy Spirit and in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So, as we take time to reflect on these words uh, from Paul, uh, let me just ask you a question of tonight and of this passage, and it'll be up on the screen for us. The question is this. Do you want to be a mature Christian? Do you want to be a mature Christian? Do you want to be someone who has grown and is growing ever increasingly into the fullness of the Christian life that God has for you? Uh, I know that for many of us, this is what we say publicly. You know, we want to present that. We want to, to present ourselves in a way that would underline the fact that we desire and long to be a mature Christian. But when no one else is around, when it's just you, God, and your heart, how many of us would say that we desire and long to be a mature Christian privately? There's always, or there can be the potential of difference between a public and a private life. So do you want to be a mature Christian? I'm just back from a two-week holiday, and it was great being away and resting. And I'm so glad I had time with my family in the fresh air away from Glasgow, as much as I love Glasgow. The one thing that this time away did was make me aware of what's going on in my heart. I had no option. It was just me, my family, God, and this time of rest. I was no longer busy. 
I could see what I was living for. I could see what it was I was feeding off of. I could see how at times my public life and my private life was inconsistent. My desire was not always to put God first. It was to put myself first. And so how easy it is for us to publicly convince ourselves that we want to be mature Christians. And yet privately, something else is going on. We long and desire something else that is not for God's glory. So the question is, do you want to be a mature Christian? And having asked that question, I hope the answer is yes tonight. Let me then ask this additional question, which will be up on the screen for us. Uh, will you let God do whatever it takes to bring you to maturity? Will you let God do whatever it takes to bring you to maturity? Now notice from this question, there's two responsibilities there. Most important of all, God, his role, his work within our lives. But also us being open to God and allowing God to do that work within us. And all of this so that we can come to that place of maturity and the power of the Holy Spirit. And for the glory of God and ultimately for our good. God doesn't have a plan and purpose for our lives that is not for our good. He wants us to make us, he wants us to, to get to that place where we become mature brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you want to be a mature Christian? I ask these two questions because as I've looked at this passage, this is the beating heart of what Paul's getting at in Ephesians 3. Paul's heart is that Ephesians would be thoroughly converted men and women of God. Uh, Walter Hooper uh, was C.S. Lewis's secretary. He knew Lewis both before he was a Christian uh, and after he was a Christian. Before he was a Christian, he was an atheist. Uh, Post-conversion, God did this incredible work within his life. When Lewis was saved, he was never actually someone who sought the limelight. He always desired to honour God. He gave away most of his money. And he also wrote personal letters to those who had written to him. So his longing was to put God first, to prioritise God. He wanted to be a mature Christian. And this was Hooper's reflections on seeing Lewis before Christ and then after Christ. He writes this, and it will be up on the screen again for us. Uh, Lewis struck me as the most thoroughly converted man I ever met. Christianity was never for him a separate department of life. His whole vision of life was such that the natural and supernatural seemed inseparably combined. What a challenge. Lewis had such an integrity of life that he had this undeniable maturity in Christ. All in light of the work that Christ through the Spirit was doing in him. It was nothing about Lewis. It was all of God and him being open to God at work in his life. This is my prayer. For each one of you tonight, this is my prayer for my own life, that people would look at us and they would say, this man, this woman is thoroughly converted. Everything about their life oozes Jesus. Everything of who they are and what they do and what they say leaves me convinced that they truly do love Jesus with all that they are. So I wonder, when you think of the non-believers who connect with you on a day-to-day -day basis, I wonder if they could say the same. This person is thoroughly converted. They shine, they ooze, they display Jesus on a day-to-day -day basis. So, question is, how do we let God lead us to that place of real and authentic Christian maturity? What we see from this prayer 
is Paul responding in three different ways. Um, he recognizes that the only way that we will ever become mature is if we actively allow the power of God to work in us and through us. And this power is rooted uh, in three different areas, three different responses from Paul. And this is what we're going to look at from this passage. So let's begin by looking at Paul's first response, uh, reverence. So Paul's first response is reverence. Paul begins his prayer, and he starts this prayer in reverential awe, in reverential awe of God and all that God has done and all that God is doing in his life. So have a look at verses 14 to 15 of our passage. Paul says this, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So Paul captures a vision of God so great that he cannot help but express that to the Ephesian believers. He wants them to see what he sees. He has this powerful vision of God and he's then expressing that to the Ephesians. And as in many of Paul's letters, what Paul says is directly rooted in what he has written before and what he writes after. So if you have your Bibles open, let's just have a look at that first phrase, for this reason. Paul says for this reason in verse 14. And it compels us to look at what he wrote beforehand. Because it's in the preceding words of Paul that we see the motive for him writing for this reason. And what we see in Ephesians is Paul beginning this letter, chapter 1, Ephesians 1. And he unpacks a long list of blessings that we have in Christ. So God has given us so much. And he wants the Ephesian believers to understand how generous God has been through Christ and in light of his grace and mercy towards us. So, verse 3, have a look at Ephesians 1, verse 3. Paul speaks about us receiving every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. And then, verses 45. Uh, he speaks of how we are chosen, predestined, adopted. Verse 7, he underlines this reality of redemption, forgiveness, and grace. Ephesians 1, verses 11 to 12. We have inheritance, we have purpose, we have hope. And then have a look at verses 13 to 14, and it might be up on the screen, Jeremy. can't remember if I put this one up. But verse 13 to 14 in Ephesians 1, maybe not. Uh, in him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is a down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. So, Paul's main point in Ephesians 1 is do not forget and do not neglect this amazing reality that you have been blessed. And you have been blessed because of Jesus and only because of Jesus. None of us can take credit for these blessings. It's all because of Jesus and it's all because of his grace. And from there, Paul then moves on in chapter 2 of Ephesians. And in this chapter, Paul unpacks how it is that God did this for us. So he says, chapter 1, you've been blessed. Chapter 2, this is how he did it. This is how he achieved this for us. And Paul highlights how he sent his son Jesus to die in our place. And as I've said already, none of us can take any credit for that. Ephesians 2, 8-9, well-known words. Paul says this, for you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from works, so that no one can boast. So God has blessed you, Ephesians. And Jesus has done this for us through his death and resurrection, says Paul. This is what Paul is saying. God's blessed you, chapter 1, chapter 2. This is how he has achieved this for you. 
And then Paul moves on to explain that this good news is not just for this small, exclusive group of people. This good news is for everybody, including, including non-Jews. Paul describes non-Jews as Gentiles, each one of us tonight. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 19, to those who had so long been excluded from God's covenant love, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. So these blessings are for everyone. No one has been excluded, and that's really important for us tonight. No one has been excluded from the love of God through the grace of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 3, Paul then moves on from that, and he underlines that he personally has been given the task to share this good news with the Gentiles. So Ephesians 3, 8 to 9, I think this is up on the screen. Yes, Ephesians 3, 8 to 9, Paul says this. This grace was given to me, the least of all, the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So what an absolute privilege for Paul to be transformed by God's grace and to then be given this responsibility to share this good news with those who had so long been excluded from the grace of Jesus. So he writes to the Ephesians, in light of all of that in our passage in verses 14 to 15, for this reason, for all of these reasons, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He's unpacked all of this, and then he says, for these reasons, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. In light of all that God is doing in my life and your life, I can't help but express reverential awe of what God is doing. And this idea of, of kneeling, it's more than just a physical act. Although I would say there are occasions, if we are physically able to, there are occasions where we should kneel in prayer. It really helps realign our hearts and our minds before God. But this is Paul externally expressing what he is internally feeling and desiring. This is Paul coming before God in full and complete humility and dependence and expectation when he kneels. So Paul kneels, and it's more than just this physical act. God's doing something in his heart. Uh, William Bartley says this about Paul's reference to kneeling. Uh, Paul's prayer for the church is so intense but he casts himself down in an agony of passionate request. When is the last time you cast yourself down in an agony of passionate request before God? Paul was a man who was hungry and thirsty for God. I wonder if that's true of you tonight. So desperate to see God working in your life and in the lives of ours, you fall to your knees and with every fibre of your being, you ask God to step in and work. The opposite of this kind of posture is really one where Jesus is my buddy. Um, when I was a teenager, I used to pray at times with my mates in my old church. Um, and there was one guy who used to refer to God as big man. Uh, so he would say, big man this and, and big man that. Big man, please help this person. And it never it never really sat right with me. And it was only when one of my friends pushed back on it that it clicked. This guy's not carrying any sense of reverence towards God. 
And I don't think many of us are at a big man stage of irreverence tonight. But how often can we act casual and lazy and in many ways flippant towards God? And we don't contemplate who it is we're actually speaking to. The God of the universe, the God of all heaven, of every tribe and every tongue. Paul says that he kneels and he kneels before the Father. And this is more than any example of fatherhood that we might see in our world today. Not only is this the worst example, not only is the worst example of fatherhood the polar opposite of God as our father, the best example of fatherhood will never reach the heights of God as our father. So the Greek word that Paul uses here for father is one that speaks of a deep, personal an intimate relationship between God and us. God is passionate to be in relationship with us and he made that possible, as Paul has already said, Ephesians 2. He made that possible by sending his son, Jesus. And more often than not, in Greek culture, the Greeks would use a word for father that meant authority and responsibility, hater. But when Paul speaks of father here, he uses a different word. It's one that speaks of a loving and a personal relationship. Paul wants the Ephesians to fully understand who this God is and how a relationship with this God is more important than anything else because there's a love relationship between God and us. It's more than authority. It's more than God having responsibility or sovereignty over us. It's God wanting to get personal with us and meet with us in a loving way. God has his very best for us because God is love. Paul says that he kneels before this, this father of love, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And here he's echoing what he's already said in this letter. Through Jesus, this relationship with God the Father is possible for everyone. Everyone, every tribe and every tongue. So without question this evening, maturity, as we've asked that question about maturity at the start, maturity begins when you and I have an accurate picture of God, when we carry reverence in our hearts. So if your longing is, how can I become more mature in Christ? Your first question is, do I have an accurate picture of God? And am I willing to respond with reverential awe to who he is? When we understand all that God has done for us, and when we understand all that God is in and of himself, how will this not result in us walking in greater fullness in Christ because of the reverence that we carry towards him? And I always come back to this song uh, by Matt Redman, it's called uh, Seeing You. It speaks of this connection between our accurate vision, our accurate picture of God, and how we then respond in worship. So let me just read these lyrics to you. And they might be words that you're familiar uh, with. But these words, for me, really highlight the importance of, of seeing God and understanding who he is, and then responding in accurate worship to him. So Redman writes this. This is a time for seeing and singing, this is a time for breathing you in and breathing out your praise. Our hearts respond to your revelation. All you are showing, all we have seen, commands a life of praise. No one can sing of things we have not seen. God, open our eyes towards a greater glimpse. The glory of you, the glory of you, God, open our eyes towards a greater glimpse. Worship starts with seeing you. Worship starts with seeing you. Our hearts respond to your revelation. 
Do you want to be mature in Christ? Are you reverent? Are you reverent before God? This song underlines, do you see God for who he really is? Do you see the love he has for you in spite of who you really are as a broken and helpless sinner? Does this then cause you to bow the knee inwardly and at times outwardly? It's the first response. The second response is request. Paul's second response is request. And he brings two requests, which we're going to divide up. And they really provide uh, the beating heart of this prayer. Uh, the first request we read is in verses 16 to the first part of verse 17. So Paul says this, I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And here we see the love that Paul has for these Ephesian brothers and sisters. What a challenge. What a challenge this is for you and I to pray as Paul prayed for these Ephesians. Paul had this longing to see them grow in Christ. How often do we pray eh, as Paul prayed? Paul's prayer, first of all, is that they may be strengthened in power in their inner being through the Holy Spirit. And to understand this phrase, inner being, we need to look at another place where Paul speaks of this. Uh, Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians 4, and verses 16 to 18, and it'll be up on the screen for us. Uh, Paul says this, uh, Therefore we do not give up, even though our outer person, our outer being, is being destroyed, our inner person, our inner being, is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, <clears throat> but what is unseen is eternal. So for Paul, if what mattered most was not how we were doing physically in our outer being, if for Paul what mattered most was how we were doing spiritually, how we are doing spiritually in our inner being. So this is, this is why some of the most godly men and women you have ever met are those who you've seen lying on a hospital bed. Uh, I can think of another, a number of examples of visiting people in hospital or in a care home or even a hospice. These people knew their time was up. They had days left. And in spite of their physical condition, God was doing something powerful within their life. Their Lord was preparing their hearts for eternity. They carried the presence of God in a way that I've never, ever seen with someone who was healthy. Uh, Thursday night, uh, after our missional community, I jumped on Facebook for a short time, and I came across a, a Pastor Bill update uh, from a church at Pony and I have had connection with uh, for a number of years. Uh, so back in 2015, in fact, it was the very first week we started the church replant here, uh, we had a team from Kentucky, from Living Hope Baptist Church, come over. Uh, and we actually hosted in our home one of the leaders, a guy called Bill. Um, he's a pastor in that church. And we were so blessed uh, by him in terms of uh, hosting, but also just in terms of his example, how he, he laughed with us and how he served and how he encouraged uh, and on Thursday past, seven years after he had been with us, um, I was sitting watching this, this three-minute update um, on his current health status. I was completely unaware 
uh, of what was going on. Uh, Bill has terminal cancer. He has weeks to live. He's still pastoring. He's still exhorting. He's still encouraging. He's had to say goodbye, but without question, he's so hopeful. He's full of encouragement. He's even excited about what God has planned for him beyond this life and in the life to come. Now, where does that come from? You will not find that in any other person who is outside of Christ. Where does his, where does his confidence come from? This is someone whose inner being is being renewed day by day through the Holy Spirit. Their outer being is fading away. Their inner being is being strengthened day after day. And I was so challenged. I was so encouraged. In many regards, because of loss, this reality of loss, I was sad that this was potentially his final week or his final month. But I have confidence, as Bill has confidence, that God has this perfect plan and his perfect purpose for his life, a life beyond this one and into eternity. As Paul prays here, this is something that we can all example today. Our inner being can be renewed. We do not need to wait for a crisis moment. Paul is encouraging every single believer in Ephesus, and he wants him to walk towards this pathway of inner renewal through the Holy Spirit. So God can do this for us today. Do not wait for a crisis moment. God might allow that or permit that in your life, but consciously choose to follow his way and watch how his spirit renews you internally. This is his plan for our lives. It may take physical ill health to bring us to that place of spiritual health. He may permit that. More important than anything that this world might have to offer us, he wants us to be transformed by his grace. This is all a picture of Jesus for us tonight. Uh, is it not the case Christ was broken down physically in order that he might fulfill the plan and purpose of his heavenly father? So if this is true of Jesus, if his body was fading away physically and he was fulfilling God's plan and purpose, will it not be true for each one of us at certain points and moments within our life? You know, a dangerous prayer for you and I to pray is this. God, do whatever it takes to make me more like you. God, do whatever it takes to make me more like you. The Holy Spirit is at work. He is at work. I'm confident of that for every single person here tonight. The Holy Spirit is at work in your inner being. Are you willing to respond in faith towards that pathway of greater and greater maturity? So that's the first request that Paul makes. The second request that we find in this passage is found in the second part of verse 17 through to 19. So have a look again at what Paul says here. Paul says, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. This is another request from Paul for power, something that T uh, Thomas was talking about this morning. And here Paul wants the Ephesian believers to be so empowered that they in some way come to terms with how much God loves them, how much God cares for them and wants to help them in their moment of need. So that all of this 
might then produce a life that is consumed by God and is faithful and fruitful to his call and to his ways. This is Paul's longing and desire, this experience of God that results in fruitful living. Paul describes the magnitude of God's love in linear terms. So he uses his words height, depth, length, and width. And for Paul, he's not saying here reasonably high and fairly deep. He's not saying God's love is partially long and a wee bit wide. No, this is Paul saying that God's love is so great, to quote one of the great theologians of our day, it's so high that you can't get over it. So low, you can't get under it. So wide, you can't get round it. Anyone know the last part? Anyone want to say it? Oh, wonderful love. These are all very timid tonight. So <coughs> Paul wants us to come to terms with the magnitude of God's love through an experience of God's love. But it's only when we experience his love that we recognize that this is immeasurable. We can't measure the love of God. And he then moves on. I'm going to describe what he, what he says next as almost like a, an audacious paradox. Um, he's seemingly contradicting himself in the same sentence. And in doing that, he wants us to see that what he's saying here makes sense in light of God's love. His hope is that they would know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. And again, this is something we touched upon this morning. To know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge now, to me, that doesn't make any sense, but it's God's word, so it's true. But to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, take stock of that tonight. Brothers and sisters, how is it that we can know something that goes beyond knowledge? Paul's effectively saying, my prayer is that you would know that which can't be known. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, he wants them not just to know the love of God, he wants the love of God to be experienced amongst the Ephesians as he has experienced God's love himself. And it's impossible to read these words of Paul earnestly and not recognize that he's speaking about the reality of Christ. It's more of an intellectual ascent about the things and the facts of God. This is a pursuit of Jesus in your life, but it becomes as real as any, or even more real than any earthly relationship that you have today in 2022. You know, someone was to ask me, do you know Pauline? For anyone who doesn't know, Pauline's my wife. Uh, would I say yes? And would I then provide all these different facts about Pauline? All these pieces of information about who she is? Her height, her favourite food, her taste in music. Would that be the definition of how it is I know Pauline? Or would I say yes? And then start to think of all these memorable moments that I've spent with her the joys we've had together, the struggles we've had, the times where we've really connected with each other, surely that's how I can say I know Pauline. Surely to know someone in this life is more than information. And the same way to know God cannot be limited to different pieces of information we have about God. Have a look at what Don Carson says uh, on this passage. He says this, Paul is not asking that his readers might become more able to articulate the greatness of God's love in Christ Jesus or to grasp with the intellect alone how significant God's love is and the plan of redemption. He is asking God that they might have the power to grasp the dimensions of that love in their experience. Doubtless, that includes intellectual reflection. 
but it cannot be reduced to that alone. That's so important for us. I mean, we are Westerners. We live in this Western context and we are so afraid of theon and experience. But experience is a part of God's word. It's not the starting point. We don't start with theons and experience. But with God's word as our foundation, as we stand on doctrine, we have the opportunity to meet with God. And surely that results in experience. This is a testimony of men and women throughout the Bible and men and women throughout church history. It can be our testimony tonight as well. It's for these reasons that Paul says that we, we may be filled with all the fullness of God. We may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's another way of Paul saying that we might be mature in Christ. Do you want to be mature? Be filled with all the fullness of God. It's fascinating stuff from Paul. What Paul shows here is that a most intellectually challenged person can be more mature than the most intellectual of theologians and the most reputable of seminaries or Bible colleges. And upon reflection, if I'm honest tonight, the people I know who are most mature in Christ are often the people that the world would disregard and reject and forget about and neglect. They're often the people who carry some kind of weakness. And through that weakness, God has made them strong. Through that weakness, God has allowed them to be more dependent upon him. They don't have big brains, but they do have a big heart for God and for his ways. And this is not to say that an intellectual pursuit of God and a spirit-filled life cannot go together. Absolutely not. We're called to worship God with all of our mind. We're called to know and understand who he is. Thomas touched upon this this morning. But this is to say that we can't just end with doctrine. We need a touch of the Holy Spirit so that logic and insight of God's word will be set ablaze in our hearts through experience, through spirit-filled experience. What am I getting at tonight? Well, it's a bit like the relationship I have with James, eh, my son. Eh, there's moments where I'll help James in very practical ways. And he knows it. James sees that. He sees that his dad's looking out for him. He knows his dad loves him through what his dad does for him. But then there's other times where I say, James, give me a hug. And as I embrace James, he experiences the love that his dad has for him in a way that can't really be replicated when I'm making his dinner or carrying his bag or helping him in some kind of practical way. The love that James receives in that moment where we're hugging each other, it's a love that surpasses knowledge. It's an experience of love. He has all this information in his wee mind about how his daddy loves him, but he experiences that love through embrace. And so it is in our relationship with God. Absolutely. We know God's love through the understanding we have. But it's so much more, it's so much more real to us when we have a powerful experience of God through the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit has been poured out in our hearts because of Jesus. So there's a lot in that, I recognise that and I'm still in my heart trying to unpack it myself. That's the second response. The second response is request <clears throat> and like all good sermons, alliteration here, uh, rejoice is the third response. I'm not saying my sermon's good by the way. I'm just 
Paul moves on and he begins to move into what many commentators have understood to be this declaration of joy, a doxology, a declaration of praise of God. It's a declaration of joy of what God in Christ can and will do through us when we really are thoroughly converted men and women of God. So when we are transformed, this will become a reality for us, these final verses in Ephesians 3. Have a look at verses 28 to 21 again. Paul writes this, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So this feels like God just pressing the dynamite button, just blowing up all of the expectations that these Ephesian brothers and sisters might have of what it is God can do. God is in the business of shattering categories. And Paul writes this, knowing that this is a testimony of his own life. The power of God in his life was such that God really did go above and beyond anything that Paul could ever dare to ask or imagine. Paul knew this to be true. We see this in the book of Acts. Paul, Paul's life was completely turned around and transformed. So for Paul, if this was the reality of his life, if it was the reality of the lives of so many people that he knew and loved, he was certain that God would break through any expectations or limitations that these Ephesians might have of God. The reality is, though, these Ephesians already knew this to be true. The Ephesian church was central to what was going on in the book of Acts. And they had been witness to some incredible movements of God. God working in great power to bring about transformation within their community. So the Ephesians knew this was true already. And yet what is Paul doing here? What he's doing is reminding them afresh of all that God can and would do. Because Christians have the worst memory. We forget the truths of God on a day-to-day basis. Paul's reminding them here. Don't forget this. Remember that this is true. This has happened in your life. This will happen in your life again. So if that was true of the Ephesians before he was writing this letter, it's true for the Ephesians as he sends this letter. And it will be true beyond this letter. It was true beyond this letter as well. Jesus has always been in the business of working in us beyond what it is we were capable of. We see it in the Gospels. We see it in Acts. We're reminded of it constantly throughout the epistles. We see it in Revelation. The presence and power of God to will and work in our lives and people's lives so that we see how not how great we are, but how great God is. And all of that brings glory to his name. And as we see with these closing words from Paul, it causes them to rejoice with all that they are as we see what it, what it is that God has done. You know, I'm so thankful that God is not done with me yet. God is not done with you yet. More often than not, the biggest obstacle to God working in your life is the limitations that we put on God. Um, this is, again, Thomas was, was touching on this this morning. We so often have this, this limited understanding of what God might do, or we often have this fear that God won't answer our prayer. And so we don't pray big prayers because we want to protect our hearts from potential unanswered prayer. We don't believe that God can and will work in our lives. So we take it off of God's hands and we often try and do it ourselves in our own strength. 
If you and I want to be mature in Christ, we must rejoice in the fact that it's only by grace that we enter and it's only by grace that we stand. Therefore, maturity and a full, complete dependence on God for our lives always have to go hand in hand. If you want to be mature in Christ, the question is, are you dependent? Are you independent or are you dependent? Our faithfulness to God is the foundation of our fruitfulness. It's only when we declare, God, I need you, that we will see God working in us in this way. When we experience his love, we will fulfill the disciple-making call that he has placed upon our lives. Your maturity in Christ will propel you into the mission for Christ. So let's not be a people who start by trying to do all these great things for God. Let's just go right into the mission and not take a moment to, to really examine our hearts and to ask God, what's really going on in my life? Am I relying upon you or am I trying to do it on my own strength? Let's begin by being with God, seeing how he empowers us and then being led by him and the power of the spirit. You know, struck by our missions week uh, last month and how God led that time. And I would say our, our missions week didn't really begin on the 4th of July when it's when, that's when it officially began, Monday the 4th of July. It began the week before. We spent a week praying and asking God to help us, asking God to strengthen us, asking God to lead us, asking God to transform us in our community. And that time of prayer really, really laid the foundation for what God did. And no doubt about it, God went above and beyond, way before, way beyond anything we could ever dare to ask or imagine within that week. So my hope and prayer is that as a church, we would continue to replicate that. As we experience God's love, it would cause us to trust in him. And this trust would be, would result in God working in great might and power through his Holy Spirit. So, you, do you want to be mature in Christ? Let us be men and women with reverence, with requests, and with rejoicing. And may we see God through his Spirit working and through us, so that the salvation of this city might become a reality. We're going to respond tonight uh, through song worship. And I just want to invite you, if you've never made Jesus uh, Lord of your life, uh, then do speak with one of us tonight. If you've never made that decision to follow him, with all that you are, to trust him and to rely upon his grace so that you may experience life and life in all its fullness. If you have questions about that, then do speak with us. If you're finding it difficult, Today, if you think your past week, past month, or even in the past year, you're facing challenges and difficulties beyond comprehension, then do, again, speak with us. We would love to pray with you and for you in that. We believe in a God who can and who does heal. So if you have a pain or an illness or ailment, then do speak with us. And we would commit that to God in prayer. So tonight we have an opportunity to make the next step towards maturity. Maturity doesn't happen in an instant. Maturity is a long, steady process of obedience in the same direction. Tonight we can make that step. Let's be open to what God might do as we go into this week and as we are expectant of what he might do. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word really is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And Lord, we, we commit our lives to you. We, we recognize that first and foremost, we need to submit to you. 
Lord, would you forgive us for the ways in which we have tried to, to manufacture and maneuver the circumstances of our lives in such a way that we get what we desire and not what you desire. Lord, would you convict us of all sin? And Lord, would you enable us to come to that place where we humbly choose to follow you? We humbly choose to walk in your way and we humbly submit not to our will, but to your will. We thank you for this time, Lord. We pray that you would bless us as we now respond through song. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys.